1: And register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at EveryWoman'sMarathon.com.
2: Hey, it's Max. And uh, before the show starts, I have a favor to ask. If you don't mind, if you enjoy the show, uh, would you just go on Apple Podcasts and leave us a review or uh, a rating? It's very helpful, it helps other people find the show. I know if you listen to podcasts, you hear people ask for this all the time. We don't ask for it very often. But uh, I would just it. maybe you could do it this week. I don't know. It'd be, uh, it'd be a nice thing to do if you, if you felt like it, which is why I'm asking. Okay, here's the show. Hello,
0: and welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Evan Ratliff. I'm here with Aaron Lammer and Max Linsky.
2: Hey. Hey, you guys. Evan, who's on the program?
0: This week, I talked to my friend, Paige Williams- Uh, I've known Paige for a while. She is a longtime magazine writer. She's been through uh, a variety of stages in her career in which she's edited magazines. She's written for magazines. She won a national magazine award for feature writing. Uh, She's also taught. She currently has a book out, which is fantastic, called The Dinosaur Artist. And we talked a good bit about that. She's a staff writer for The New Yorker now. We talked about that. And, uh, I really had a good time talking to
2: her. Wait, this book is about the dinosaur bone market, right? This is about like people stealing, buying, selling, faking dinosaur bones. Yeah, I'm sold. Yeah, if you should, I'll lend you my copy. <laughs>
0: Thank you. Thank now you. you should buy one. <laughs> okay, I will.
2: Lambert trying to sling those dinosaur bones. <laughs> <laughs> What's up with the dinosaur bone market these days? It's so it's d- not like a how. Does she Does she
0: have any like deals she knows about? She knows a lot about how to report out and write long stories, and she's a she's a wonderful writer. So, it's a great episode.
2: Paige Williams right up there on those names that like how has this person not been on a podcast yet? Paige Williams All Stars. If you've got an interest like dinosaur bones uh, and you want to share it with uh, the people out there in the world who share that interest at a hobby or professional trader level, <laughs> you need an email newsletter. No one makes it easier than Mailchimp. Uh, I find it greatly pleasurable every time I log into their interface it's simple it's fun and it doesn't make it feel like a chore to send out the email newsletter every week so thank you MailChimp now here's Evan with Paige Williams
0: Paige Williams I cannot believe you are on this podcast
1: (laughs) Finally, (laughs) after all these years.
0: I'm glad that we didn't do it before. Although if we'd done it before, we could just do it again. But it's so much more fun to do it with the book out than before the book was out. I have the book. My microphone is sitting upon the book. One thing that occurs to me is that you are currently living in a very strange world of you had told me that you had a story coming out in The New Yorker. And you were like, let's tape this after my story comes out in The New Yorker. And you didn't say what it was. <laughs> right. And you have a very eclectic set of interests and ability to write about a wide range of things. So I had no idea what it was. But I kind of, just because I was reading the book, I kind of assumed that maybe it was science-related or or even dinosaur-related or something. <laughs> maybe it was an excerpt, although the original story did appear in The New Yorker. Right, anyway. Right. And then the story came out, and it's a profile of Sarah Huckabee Sanders. Uh-huh. And then it just, to me, you're like living in the most modern newsy moment with that. And then like literally in like a paleontological world discussing your book. And I'm, I'm wondering how you're keeping those things in your head right now.
1: Maybe, I, maybe I'm maybe i not. Maybe <laughs> they fly right out. And uh, it feels right in a way because I've always been a generalist. I've always been someone who values and who was told to value in newspaper days range. Um, it's good to be able to write about lots of different things and to report on lots of different things. So that was part of how the book came up, and then also uh, part of how Sanders came up. That was an assigned piece, as in I didn't go in with that idea, that it was mentioned to me. And, And this was before... The Red Hen incident. This was before the White House Correspondents Association uh, yeah. dinner. It was before she had worldwide, I guess, or at least domestic uh, U.S. name recognition. So that posed a little bit of a problem and that suddenly everybody was profiling her. And, and Yeah,
0: this was like 10,000 <laughs> news cycles ago. That it you started was.
1: <laughs> it was in geological let's just mesh the two in <laughs> geological <laughs> terms it was it was quite a while ago and it was hard to sort of stay calm while news was breaking around her all the time and think okay now what's the what's the story that we can do that nobody else is going to be doing and that we can do deeper and hopefully better
0: and when you when they brought you that assignment were you immediately did it immediately Crap! you? Did you think, Yeah. yeah, this is something I can do?
1: Yeah, for a few reasons. I mean, she's the spokesperson for the Trump administration. She's the face of the Trump administration other than Trump she has influence with the president she is very well liked by her colleagues which is a rare and bizarre thing in the white house in the west wing in particular Mm. and she's very well liked among journalists believe it or not like the backstage sarah sanders is very different from the camp on camera sarah sanders and i thought that juxtaposition or that dichotomy was really interesting and worth exploring. And then she's from Arkansas and I'm from Mississippi and you get this, being from Atlanta, that, I mean, there's just something interesting there about how one comes to that particular position of influence and power from Arkansas.
0: I wondered when I read it, How much of a role that played in you getting her to talk to you I mean she didn't do much on the record from what I could see but she did cooperate to some level and family members seemed to have
1: at one point she said this is gonna happen whether I like it or not right and I was like yeah (laughs) it's gonna happen whether you like it or not so I mean you know she wisely participated as much as she felt she could I think but at first she said you know She said, No, 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 never. It's never going to happen. I hung out in the White House and to no avail. It's never going to happen. And then I happened to be at home for my niece's high school graduation in Tupelo and just said, I'm going to go over to Arkansas and just hang out there and spend some time and get to know the family and see what I can see and it was after that that she came around a little bit I don't want to make it sound like she was ever welcoming she wasn't she's you know she held pretty firm to her desire to as she likes to say what is her phrase um state policy not make policy and the same thing applies to like speaking she just wants to speak for the president and not be known in any other way, which is wishful thinking when you're in that position. You're a public figure. Her husband likes to say she was never elected to anything. No one should be looking at her for anything, which is just untrue. If you're the spokesperson for the president of the United States, you're going to be, I think it was Chris Cuomo who said to her one day on air, you're going to be scrutinized. This is part of your job. So that seems like that
0: would always be true, but this particular administration... Doesn't
1: understand... A hundred times more. ...the way a lot of things work. (laughs) Journalism in particular.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So part of the reason I wanted to juxtapose those things, the book and sort of like dipping into the maelstrom of the news cycle, and we'll talk about the book in more depth, but you are this generalist in terms of like the voraciousness of your interests from what I can see from your pieces. And I'm curious what, in terms of your approach... I mean, it's a totally different piece to like go find, you know, someone who's committed a crime and try to get them to talk to you about it as you've done in the book versus like profiling someone who maybe wasn't as high profile when you started. But then and do you view those skills as sort of all the same skill or do you feel like you have a subset of skills that you developed for different types of stories?
1: That's a really good question. I think it's all the same thing. Well, I think it's two things. I think it's all the same thing in that. You are at the bottom of everything talking about people and talking to people and you're trying to get close to them or get interested in them because of whatever it is they've done or they're doing or they're interested in doing, whatever worldview they may have. It's just never about the facts of something. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other thing... Um, The second part of that is I think you do have to adjust your approach depending on the sensitivity of the story. So if you're dealing with traumatized people, for example, you want to go into that in a very different way than you would go into, say, an antagonistic interview where somebody's going to be trying to hide something from you or trying to spin you or deflect in some way. So it's sort of case specific. Right. Mm -hmm. Story by story. But I think for me as a reporter and as a human being at the base of it, I'm just interested in this person and what they're up to.
0: That's reminiscent of a review of your book that came out in The New York Times today. Today or yesterday? It was
1: yesterday. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. that's
0: I mean, at the heart of the review was something I thought when I was reading the book, which is this book is fundamentally not like a dinosaur book. It's called The Dinosaur Artist, but it's actually about these people who are caught up in this world and their human experiences.
1: In this crazy world, if it, you know, it's about a lot of different things. I mean, I found it interesting to report and to write because it had so many threads that I thought were worth pursuing. So you had the you had a very ordinary guy doing a very extraordinary thing in pursuing a succession of fossils, meaning starting out with shark teeth, moving up to megafauna, like giant ground sloths, 20 feet tall, and armadillos the size of a car, and then deciding that he needed to go even bigger and to get into dinosaurs. And the dinosaurs in the United States are hard to get into because that land is already taken Mm -hmm. for the most part. Paleontologists Mm -hmm. are working it for one thing, and then commercial dealers are working it. So there's that sort of competition for those dinosaur lands, and so the easy go-to was, um, I don't want to spoil it for anybody, but the easy go-to was the marketplace. And in this case, the black market for dinosaur bones coming out of the Gobi Desert of Mongolia.
0: I feel like this guy, Eric, he's an enigma, but he's also like, (sighs) in some ways, he's like the kid who's like childhood hobby, just metastasize into something else.
1: Yeah. And Prokoppi, Eric Prokoppi is his name. And the reason, again, not to spoil it, but the reason he ended up going the route that he went, there were marital reasons. There were financial reasons. There were issues maybe of, I don't know if it's right to call it ego, but he wanted a bigger challenge. He wanted to be known for being among his peers, not known. He didn't want to be famous. He's not that kind of person, but he wanted to be known as somebody who could do these big jobs. And Everybody wants to
0: be at the top of their field.
1: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And he wanted to sell to museums and he wanted to have his pieces, his reconstructions, dinosaurs or what have you in museums so that he could take his kids around to see here's what daddy did. And then On the Mongolian side, it was the same thing. There was a guy who saw an opportunity and he took it as communism was falling in... Mongolia around 1990, <laughs> and as that clash of is so bizarre. I never expected the story to take me into that, in sort of the geopolitical area of Russia, China, Mongolia, the United States, and it's
0: so insane,
1: and North Korea. Hello, I mean, it's <laughs> you know, it's it was unexpected, but also delicious. And and there may be more of that than people want. Like, I, I, you, know, my editor, at one point was like, "Why are you so obsessed with this part of the story?" I was like, "I don't know. I mean, it just feels interesting to me." and of the moment i mean china and russia is our news right now yeah you know and north korea too for yeah. that matter so doesn't it behoove us to look at these relationships and to understand the diplomatic history between the united states and mongolia in particular
0: yeah i love those little like rivulets of knowledge that you gain as you're going along there's a sneaky like there's almost like a sneaky housing crisis part of it too like they're like flipping houses yeah and it's not like you go into that But there were all these sort of like themes that it hits on that if you said like it's a story about a man who stole some dinosaur bones. (laughs) Right. Like, nah.
1: Well, yeah. (laughs) And to me, I was interested in more than I love true crime. And I, as you know, we've long talked about this. And and so that would have been fine and enough, but I thought it was more than that. I just kept seeing more context for it. And the context to me is important. And there's a point that you have to cut yourself off I could have kept going and they were I think about to murder me uh, if I didn't hurry up and just get it in but I could report something for you know ever yeah and never start writing
0: and did they actually cut you off or oh like, yeah did they <laughs> like what kind of pressure did they yield in order to do that
1: hmm well a guy showed up at my house at late one night with a bat
0: <clears throat> <laughs> give me the manuscript yeah.
1: Give it to me. But I had a very lovely editor named Michelle Howery at Hachette who just had a, a nice way of getting on the phone and saying, mm hmm, we, yeah, I, that's fascinating what you found out about um, the market economy in Ulaanbaatar, but we really don't care and we need this now. And, um, and there were deadlines that, came and went. And that's not like me. Like I don't, if, if I have a deadline, I try to make it mm-hmm. and I try to meet it. But if I tell an editor though, that I think this bears a little more scrutiny or if I need a little bit longer, there's usually a good reason. It's not me. I don't take days off. I mean, it's not me sitting around going, I think I'm gonna go to the beach today.
0: Mm-hmm. There are no days off. I haven't off. known you to be a person no. <laughs> who didn't work very hard.
1: <laughs> right, right, right. And maybe... Maybe the answer lies in working a little less hard, but I just, it's w- what we do, right? And I can't imagine not doing It's like being on the clock all the time in the most wonderful way. I can't imagine not being on the clock 24-7. It's literally all I think about. And maybe that makes me a boring person or a one-dimensional person, but but I care very much about it and I care about getting it right. And it takes it takes time.
2: Hey it's Max, I'm going to put Evan and Paige on hold for just a second tell you a little bit about some sponsors that are making today's show possible First up, uh, our very close friends, that's Skagen. Skoggen is a watch company and it's inspired by uh, the Danes aka the happiest people on earth and when you take a closer look it's easy to see why those folks are so happy their culture focuses on uh, what's meaningful being part of a community, making time for relationships, living in the moment. Scoggin's minimalist design reflects this less-is-more lifestyle. And uh, they've got these men's watches, women's watches, jewelry, even smart watches in a variety of styles, and they create styles driven by their guiding principle, good design for better living. I've been wearing one of these Scoggin smart watches around, and uh, it's great. It doesn't look like a... Uh, goofy smartwatch you don't feel like a dingus walking around it looks great and uh it can do all these uh you know futuristic things it feels like you got the future on your wrist but nobody knows which is exactly what you're looking for in a smartwatch scoggin products look right any time of day anywhere in the world now or 10 years from now because simplicity isn't just beautiful it's versatile. Visit Skagen.com to get a special discount on your first purchase when you sign up for their emails. That's S-K-A-G-E-N.com. Thanks to them for sponsoring the show. We have uh, really enjoyed their support. You know who's been supporting this show for years? Squarespace. And that's the place to turn your dream into a reality. Squarespace makes it easier than ever to launch your passion project. Whether you're looking to start a new business, showcase your work, publish content, sell products... Whatever you want to do on the internets, Squarespace is the tool for you. With beautiful templates created by world class designers and the ability to customize just about anything with a few clicks, you can easily make a beautiful website all by yourself. You don't need to know a uh, lick of code, everything just works. They got e commerce functionality so you can sell anything you want, analytics so you know who's visiting and uh, how to keep them there for longer. Everything's optimized for mobile, right out of the box. There's nothing to patch, nothing to upgrade. You really don't need to know how to build a website to build a website, which is pretty amazing when you think about it. If you do hit a snag, you won't, but if you do, they've got award-winning, 24-7 customer support. Squarespace empowers millions of people, from designers to lawyers, artists to gamers, even restaurants and gyms, to turn great ideas into something real. Now is your chance to turn your great idea into something real. Go to squarespace.com longform for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code longform. You'll get 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Again, that's squarespace.com longform, offer code longform. Thanks to Squarespace. Thanks to Skoggin. Let's get back to Evan and Paige. <laughs>
0: you very um artfully not included yourself in this book and i don't actually know at what point where you were when you found out about this like you can't even at certain points i can tell you were following along like you were there and then other points i think well this could be reconstructed or she could have been there so i don't actually know when did this idea first Come to you?
1: So, I was sitting in a borrowed house in Gloucester, Massachusetts, after my semester. I teach also, as you know, and the semester just ended, and I was just miserable, miserably in search of a book. I just had, you know, this, I mean, for years and years and years, I was looking for the right project. And one lesson learned here is that if you spend all your life waiting for the right project to come along, is you're just going to sit there your yeah. whole life. So I had noticed a dinosaur case years earlier in 2009. By reading the newspaper in my hometown of Tupelo, Mississippi, I was just sitting in a coffee shop and saw this thing about a Montana dinosaur thief and thought, "Oh, that's really interesting." I don't know anything about that, and I knew nothing about natural history, nothing about natural history museums. I was born and raised in Mississippi; we didn't talk about that kind of stuff, and <laughs> grew up in the Baptist church. It certainly wasn't mentioned there, and um... <laughs> the earth
0: wasn't <laughs> even old enough to allow for that. Sort
1: no, of thing. no, no, no. Um, and so I, it just was a world completely alien to me, which I love. I love going into worlds that I know nothing about. And I like to take them apart and put them back together again to see what they're about and to see who lives in those worlds and what they care about and why they're there. And it just seemed like a rich world. But anyway, that, the case that, that was in the paper that day ended up not being the one worth pursuing. And then I found another one that ended up not being the one worth pursuing and yet i spent spec money like going out to wyoming and montana and south dakota to watch the excavation of a juvenile t-rex and then an adult t-rex in another place and no assignment no assignment no i don't think i even pitched it at that point i just didn't know what it was Mm -hmm. i was just like this is interesting i'm gonna go and i took a photographer friend of mine to take photos thinking "Oh, it could be multimedia it could be an atavist piece it could be anything and Um, that's expensive, you know, renting cars and staying in hotels or wherever you're staying. That fell apart, and I decided to drop it, and I went to that house in Gloucester to think about what to do with my life, like literally think about, do I need to, am I in the right place? Am I doing the right thing? Am I using what I know how to do in the right way? Am I, what am I doing? And how do I think strategically about this business that I love and this craft that you know is my life and as I was sitting there I'm not even kidding this I had set google alerts for like dinosaur thief and dinosaur uh, Mm -hmm. poacher and fossil poaching and fossil thief and all these things and the Procopy case popped up and I thought oh no I'm uh, I'm done with this I never want to hear the word dinosaur again as long as I live and I literally slammed the laptop shut. It's like I'm not even looking at this. And then of course I looked at it. You're gonna look at it. And I decided that I would call the Houston, Texas lawyer, Robert Painter, and ask him if anybody had contacted him yet. And I told myself that if nobody had contacted him, then it was wide open for me to do. Mm-hmm. And weirdly enough nobody had. So it was wide open. And then at that point you wanna protect the story, right? You wanna you wanna make sure everybody's not running roughshod over it in some way. And it was covered extensively, but at that point I started developing relationships with the different characters so that the story could be told, and protected as I reported and wrote it. Mm-hmm. And that was the story I pitched to Daniel Zaleski at the New Yorker, my editor at the New Yorker.
0: And at this point was the case still open? Yeah. It was yeah, okay. Very much so. It yeah. wasn't
1: it wasn't it was a civil case at that point and it had not even become a criminal case. So while I was reporting the piece it became a criminal case. And he was arrested in the middle of it. Um, you know, handcuffed at home.
0: And were you you were already spending time with them at that point?
1: I was already spending time with them. I was not there on the morning that they arrested him. I was there on the day he went to prison. I was there on the day he came out of prison. You're right. That was astute reading to see that some of it was observed and some of it was reconstructed. The other observed parts were like Mongolia with um, Dr. Bolor Minjin uh, driving around the Gobi Desert mm-hmm. in her New York City bus, <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> which was something to see. Um, But I could also
0: see in reading it why it was you didn't want to close it out yet because it's like there's more like there's there's places where you could end that book even earlier. But then there's something more that's unresolved and then you you keep chasing it and then you get it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I just it didn't seem finished. And uh, I'm not one of those reporters who needs to have everything wrapped up nicely with a you know, this tidy ending but more for me to stay interested more did have to happen and i didn't it, it's not like that story ran and i then pitched it as a book a year passed between the publication and so that was january 2013 and it wasn't until the summer of 2014 that i was like okay this is a book i'm going to uh-huh. yeah uh-huh. so it wasn't like immediately let me try to parlay this into something it wasn't like that at all what i wanted to do was more magazine stories and Get back to work. And it was only when he when Perkopi was sentenced to prison that I thought, oh, that's interesting. He's that was unexpected. Even the people who prosecuted him and who defended President Elbegdorj of Mongolia did not expect him to get jail time, much less prison it time. seems
0: almost sorry about it, like the wish that they had. That <laughs> Some they of them were
1: sorry about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and in the book, I don't know if you are going to read the four million pages of notes in the back, but um, they're there for a reason. And Or this may be an epilogue, actually. The president of Mongolia conveyed through Robert Painter that he was sorry that this had happened and that he didn't mean for anybody to go to prison and that he just wanted the dinosaur <laughs> back. <laughs>
0: Well, I feel like that uh, is it. Procopi, yeah. Procopy, uh-huh. There's actually literally a passage in the book about how his name yeah. is mispronounced. <laughs> it's
1: not Procopi. It's not Proscopy, It's not Pocopsy. I mean, there are lots of <laughs> there are lots of interesting twists on the name.
0: So, the when it comes to the sort of human dimension, it seems like you got very close to. I don't mean close necessarily that you were f- close friends, although maybe that happened as well. But you got really up close to his life and relationships, and his wife, and things that went on there. And that really made me think about the reporting and decisions about what you could or couldn't put in, or what was established at the beginning, saying, like, look, anything goes, or it was decided at the end.
1: Yeah, the whole, going into it, everybody knew anything goes. My notebook's always out, my recorder's always out, and there is that uncomfortable moment when you spend so much time with a family, especially a family with young children. Like, the kids... You know, don't understand what you are and mm-hmm. what why you're there and why you're always holding a pen, and so they might run up and hug you when you get there. And what are you going to do? Swat the kids away and say, "No, I'm a reporter. I can't be, can't be warm to you. I think it's important to be a person." There were times when Amanda, who's very friendly, and that's effer- his wife, uh huh, first wife, yeah very friendly and effervescent. She would say to the kids, oh, it's our friend Paige. And what are you going to do? Say, I'm not your friend. But I made it clear that like, I'm here to do a job. And as much as I may feel for what you're going through, I'm not here to get involved in it. So um, the expectations were always clear. And they were incredibly forthcoming and incredibly as much as Procopi can be open, open, he's a fairly reserved. As you can tell from the book, it made it challenging because he's such a reserved person. Mm-hmm. He doesn't talk on and on, which is both good and bad. I mean, it can be exhausting, but it's also um, you need him to say something, right? I mean, it's it was it was hard because yeah. he just, you know, has very has a very distinctive way of talking that made it difficult to do anything quickly and you want to hear him out you know you don't want to talk over him or um, or just assume that he has nothing to say because he's being quiet he's thinking about it he's a thinker before he's a talker and it must have been weird to them at the end for me just to suddenly go away because mm-hmm. I'd been back and forth you know first to Florida then to Virginia then now to Savannah is where they live now um, saw him in New York you know it's just I was I haunted their lives for four years and and Amanda once told me that she was kind of glad of it because it gave Eric a distraction that he needed. So I don't know. Who knows?
0: And did they understand when the book came out that all of that was going to be in there? Did you mm-hmm. feel like when they read it or they understood what was in there, they were like, yeah, that's what we signed up for?
1: Yep. I uh, fact-checked it with them on one very, very, very long spurt of a trip to Savannah. And it was exhausting (laughs) because I literally went page by page. And there were things in there that were painful to them that they didn't like hearing. And, you know, nobody, people rarely like seeing themselves in print, right, when it's all over and done with. I think that there were painful things, especially about the marriage and some of the things that happened. But Amanda has been a good, she's a good bookseller. <laughs> she's been selling. Really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. She's amazing. I mean, she is quite a personality and is a lot of fun. And she's been selling it all over Facebook and giving it to friends. She's got a huge friendship circle in Gainesville. It's all the junior leaguers and they're all <laughs> yeah, reading it. I was and- born in Gainesville. I didn't know that.
0: Yeah, I just lived there when I was a little kid. I don't really remember Did you about live it, near but- Tom Petty? I, I don't know i don't know
1: <laughs> tom petty enters this book in a bizarre way <laughs> really As, and one thing i didn't put in the book was that on the day after Percopi got out of prison um i went fossil hunting with him and his two children to this riverbank i think it was the york river it might have been the james river i can't remember it's drizzly and gray and cold it was right before christmas And it was great. I mean, slick moss, bright green moss, still water, weird trees, lots of roots. It was cool. And we walked around for a while and picked up a couple of things because, as I was told, the riverbank is public domain. But we're walking off and there's a sign there that's like, property of Bruce Hornsby. And I was like, what "What are we doing on Bruce Hornsby's land? So he's a realtor, (laughs) apparently. Did you know that?
0: Bruce Hornsby is a realtor?
1: Well, that's what I asked. I was like, "What is is that the Bruce Hornsby?" He said, "Yeah, that's the Bruce Hornsby." I was like, "How do you
0: could he be what? pulling your leg?" I just, I
1: looked I it up later. Bruce late. Hornsby's
0: doing pretty well. He's like tours with other bands and stuff, even though he's not as big as he was. I guess it's,
1: it's is the equivalent of Eli Manning buying the Papa Johns. I don't know. <laughs> Was it Eli that bought the Papa John's? Uh, or was it the other no, one? I think it's, I think it's Peyton. It Peyton, okay.
0: I don't know if he bought, but he's like a spokesperson for Papa John's. Oh, I, I
1: thought know. he bought like a franchise or something. Anyway, don't put misinformation out there in the world. What I'm saying is <laughs> <laughs> he, he may be diversified. I don't really know. Smart. I know, but I, it's good waterfront property right there in uh, somewhere Virginia, in some riverbank.
0: I want to know how you, from a... Even just a process perspective, because I've dealt with this myself, so I'm very curious about it. The volume of information and the spread of information that you're dealing with in this book, there's a lot of sort of like paleontology, obviously, but there's also all this sort of politics, Mongolian politics, and there's family histories of various people. How did you organize information as you were going along? Like Your bibliography is huge. You have a, a huge number of source notes. Like, is this stuff just piled around your apartment? Like, how, how did you <laughs> go about even deciding which routes to go down amidst all that?
1: I tried really hard to make the Procopy story the core narrative. That's the spine of the story, right? Mm-hmm. So I heard my Columbia colleague, Nick Lemon, describe this the other day with uh, regarding interviews. But I think this also applies to story structure and to organizing material. If you think of a tree trunk and then all these different branches that come off um, you've got to start with this one main thing and figure out what all these other landing areas are. And so if I kept the Procopy story as the backbone, all those other threads organically wound through it. And so I didn't feel that I could ignore it. Um, <laughs> there have been a couple people who didn't necessarily want to see Mary Anning in this book. Mary Anning, the poor teenage fossil hunter from early 1900s coastal England down in Lyme Regis. Mm -hmm. She's my more cowbell. I mean, I think every paleontology book should have more Mary Anning because (laughs) she was so unheralded and so um, treated so badly for her whole life and died poor and alone. And she had given men of science their name by her labors and by her dedication to what it is they were studying. She didn't just go to the beach and dig things up or find things and take them home and clean them. She wanted to know what the science was behind those things. And paleontology wouldn't exist the way it exists now without her. Yeah. So you can't tell the story without her. But it's not like a one-off because she left a legacy that includes now the business partner of Eric Procopi. Mm-hmm. It was his, uh, that's where he searches now, where Mary Anning used to search when she was a teenager, just trying to provide for her family. So that was a to me, that was a clean dovetail. I know
0: It also felt like one of these, like the Times just did these like lost obits, like people yes, who should have had yeah, obits that yeah. never had them. And it kind of felt like that to me, like that you found this woman or like, What the fuck? This woman's not famous. Why is this woman not famous?
1: Right. And she is to the the science world. She is to geologists and Mm -hmm. paleontologists and maybe to amateur collectors and people who are just fascinated with that world. But I just the book is for a lay audience. You know, it's not for the person who already knows this stuff and is going to I mean, hopefully it's for them, too. But and also there are very few women in the science. So. Here you had Mary Anning, whose name should be wider known, more widely known. And then you have, you know, Buller Mingen, who's a woman in a very difficult field and is actively pushed against in some ways by some members of her field. Um, So I just think if you can get... I didn't try to put more women in there just for the sake of more women. They are the story. Mm -hmm. Um, Can I back up for a second? Yeah. You asked about organization and like keeping track of material. Um, So... I always ask other writers that same question because I'm fascinated by how people work. The house was a hoarder situation for a little bit. (laughs) All that stuff lives in storage now, but um, it was stacks and stacks of books and papers and other documents, FOIA documents from the State Department, all that kind of stuff that comes in on paper, you know? Anything that was digital, if we're going to get like nerdy about it. I love it. (laughs) I know, me too. Um, I did Scrivener. For the writing, and I did Devon Think for the organization. Mm -hmm. What do you use? I have
0: Scrivener for the writing and Evernote for the materials. I
1: can't do Evernote. I can't get with it. Really? Uh Uh-uh. Huh. Do you use the No,
0: no, no. I don't do that. I do use the scanner. I take pictures of things with my phone, and then they get scanned, and Evernote are like clipping everything from the web that Hmm. gets automatically in there, and they have crazy tags. Same. (laughs) Like, it doesn't make you feel at the end, like, I could be like an archivist. Like, I could do that. I don't know how many jobs there are like that, but, like, maybe I should just do that. That, to me, was the most fun part.
1: You know, I love that, too. And, like, when you're doing your... Have you done your index yet?
0: Uh, No, I haven't done the index It's the most...
1: Well, it's the most fun... They won't let you do it. I begged to do my own index, and they were like, you have literally lost your mind. Please stop. Turn the book in. Please stop talking about the index. Well,
0: also, because you have to pay for it. So I was gonna... Did you have to pay for it? No.
1: (sighs) What are you talking about?
0: In most cases, including my own, the author has to pay for the index. (gasps) What you should check and make sure they didn't just take it out of your money. But yeah, like some people are smart enough to write into the contract and I was not one of those people. Like specifically, like you pay for the index, not me.
1: Wow, no, nobody ever told me that. I mean, that's a deal breaker to me. Like at one point, my first editor, Michelle left to go to a different publishing house midway through the book. So I lost my editor midway through Um, and then got a wonderful editor named Paul Whitlatch. And uh, I think it was Michelle that I asked. She said at one point, Let's just don't do an index. That's like telling me, let's just don't put words in here. Let's don't put words in the book. Let's just have, let's just don't do it. I was like, you, no, that's, I I quit. I quit. I'm not doing it. If you can't do it. I mean, the index is, that's how you find things. Well, I can tell
0: you that you would have thought of it differently if they came to you and said, do you want to do an index? You know, you have to pay for it. How you much does said, it cost? I don't know yet. I think it's like $1,200.
1: That is criminal. <laughs> Yeah. Well, okay. Well, that's interesting. I don't. I'll go back and check. You got a good deal. Maybe I did, and they sure did. You know, I mean, my little secret, and this was probably not okay. And I don't. I wouldn't do it again, obviously, just because it feels a little wrong. But you know, there were swaths of the book that that Michelle's like, no, cut, cut. These twenty thousand words, please cut. So they became footnotes uh, <laughs> they, they went into the notes just, they can do them in smaller type yeah, yeah she said it's going to be microscopic people are going to need a, a magnifying glass to read it but I was like I don't care it's fine <laughs> because it's more context and, and yes I, it's important to make choices and I will do my next book differently probably in that respect but just the whole world, like if you want it, it's like bonus. You get a, another half of a book on top of, <laughs> on top of this. Like the story itself is like fewer than 300 pages, but then the notes is another 89, I think. And just think of it as a second, as <laughs> a bonus, I guess. I don't know.
0: Okay, so we've. I want to go back because we sort of dropped in at, you were in Gloucester and then you came across this idea and then you're like, I'll pitch it to the New Yorker. But now I feel like people need to understand how you got to the point where you could say I'm going to pitch that to the New Yorker because you mm-hmm. lived several lives in this work uh, previous to that point. So let's start at the beginning, which is how did you get interested in journalism in the first place?
1: Um, in college, so I went to Ole Miss, and I had never, I had no concept of journalism. Nobody in my family was a writer or a reporter or a journalist or anything related to this field. They were all. Teachers and coaches. Mm. And my dad owned a sporting goods store. My mother was a basketball coach and PE teacher. And all my aunts and uncles and cousins, all athletes. And that's what we did. We did sports and that was it. And when I went to Ole Miss, you know, I'm still devastated by the fact that there were world class writers there that I didn't even know about. Barry Hanna was there, Mm. Willie Morris was there. Donna Tart had been there Whoa. some years before me, but she had spent, I think, a semester or a whole year at Ole Miss before. Barry Hannah, I think, is the one who said, you need to go to Bennington and you need to be a writer and get out of here. Um, but I didn't know any of that. And I found journalism by flipping through the course catalog, and I liked the word. I don't even know how to explain what that means, but I was just like, what is this? What does it mean? What? Do I-? I mean, I think, I think I always knew I was going to write. But I didn't know what that meant or how to do it or who to talk to or any of that. And Ole Miss is a very social school. It especially was back then. And so your attention was more on frat parties and uh, that kind of thing. I don't mean to sound like disparaging to frat parties. I'm sure they're fine. But I think
0: you can disparage frat parties I think very sh- freely I, on I this think, podcast. Well,
1: yeah, well...
0: We are, we are currently in a national reckoning with frat parties in some ways, although I'm not sure oh, many that's people so are true. actually reckoning on. But. Well,
1: there's reckoning to be done everywhere and yeah. there, for sure. And boy, I could tell you stories, but I won't, not here. Um, but, you know, I just, the, the journalism part was really good at Ole Miss. It had some old uh, UPI guys wire service guys and editors like actual working journalists who were taking a break from the field to teach so it wasn't theory it was all in practice and i loved it and decided that that's what i wanted to do and started working summers first at the tupelo daily journal which is my hometown paper and then at the jackson clarion ledger which is the largest paper in mississippi and that was the next summer and uh then i went back finished you know my senior year and Went to the Washington Post.
0: That's not an easy thing to get, right? Out of well, college, is it's it? a
1: it's a reporting intern. Uh-huh. So you apply, and your the understanding is that you'll be assigned to a, a beat. And I covered Alexandria and Arlington, Virginia, and was on the metro desk, and loved every second of it. Had no, I was v- a fish out of water in a big way. I was from Tupelo, Mississippi. I'd never been anywhere uh-huh. much or done anything. Had It was green, green, green. And, um, you know, one of our first luncheons was with Bob Woodward, and it was just like, I mean, how do you even process that? And other interns are from, like, the Miami Herald, the New York Times, and they're all asking him these intelligent questions, and I just absorbed it because what what can you really do? Um, I was way less aggressive than I am now, like, as a reporter, I think, and as a person I was maybe less confident back then, just didn't think I could sort of – be in the room with with those folks without totally humiliating myself. (laughs) But it was a great experience and from there I went to the Charlotte Observer for 10 years and covered everything. Covered all the things you're supposed to cover as, a, as I think, snobbishly as a journalist, I still believe newspapers the best way to start mm-hmm. because you get to cover everything. You're working with people who have done it themselves and who know how to go find documents, who know how to talk to people, who know how to do breaking news, who know what to do when a plane falls out of the sky, who know what to do when a hurricane hits. You know, all of that was crucial. And these were some of the best reporters Anywhere that mm-hmm. the Observer had just won a couple of Pulitzers, one for bringing down the PTL Jim and Tammy Faye Baker, oh god, and another for like um, Black Lung—it was a Black Lung disease expose that was about people not being cared for after working in the cotton mills—and mm. that was way before my time, but it was recent enough that the paper was still gilded and like there was a shine on it, and you were proud to be there, and it was a fabulous place to learn. I learned. Everything there. I mean, those were the people who who taught me and who were good role models and who believed in nurturing talent but not coddling you in any way but in giving you assignments that would help you get to where you wanted to go. And while I was at the – but wherever that was, I didn't have any – like I talked to the New York Times. I talked to the L.A. Times. Uh-huh. Um, they both brought me in for extensive interviews and some other places I can't remember. Baltimore Sun at one point in the middle of all that I did an even fellowship at Harvard and I think it was after that that I started thinking do I want to go do something else
0: and were you thinking that because of sort of looking at the industry or your own personal like do I want to be a beat reporter I I didn't want to
1: be in daily news anymore I Mm -hmm. didn't want to run a gun anymore I wanted to write magazine stories and of course the New Yorker was like the for me like the kingdom and the power and Some people may see an easy path to that kind of place. I didn't. I had no idea how to – I didn't know anybody. I didn't know (laughs) – like what do you even do? Do you send in your clips? Do you, you know, report it out and find somebody who knows somebody who can get you a coffee with somebody? I just didn't know how to do it. Mm So instead I just started writing magazine-length pieces for the newspaper and writing talk of the town type pieces for the newspaper for the Charlotte Observer. And ended up selling a piece to Talk of the Town about some undiscovered rare books in the Vanderbilt Estate Library in Asheville. And that was fun. And it led me to believe that I could do it and Mm -hmm. that I had the right voice for it because it does require a specific, it's its own little art form, talk is. And, you know, in the middle of all this, there's some personal Sadness and that my father died that kind of set things off in a weird direction. I I went into teaching. I decided to go teach for a while and try to figure out how to write magazine pieces and to write books and and stay out of daily news because Mm -hmm. I did not feel I enjoyed it. I always enjoyed it, but I wanted to go deeper I didn't want to go longer for length's sake. That wasn't, I mean, I know we're on the long form podcast, but it wasn't about writing at length for that, just for the sake of writing at length. It was about exploring a certain topic or person or story with depth and with care.
0: And did you, when you were making that transition, I mean, you mentioned this sort of like talk of the town type voice. Did you feel like at that point, I have a voice that I know is going to go into these stories or were you sort of feeling around for what that would be.
1: I think my newspaper voice was very different from any voice that I know now. It was lighter, it was choppier, I think. It was it, it sounded like it had some hurry up behind it. I, and I think you know what I've had to do is modulate that voice a little bit or what I've been happy to do actually is modulate that voice for a little bit. I mean, listen, some of that stuff was dreadfully overwritten and too sprightly and too cute just way too cute it was immature writing it was it was a writer trying to figure out who they were mm. and what their actual true voice is and so you, you can look at it that way or you can just say oh god it's insufferable it's just too cute everybody so, has that <laughs> do
0: they? I say that I'm sure there are theoretical people out there who look at what they wrote when they were I don't know in yeah. their 20s and are sort yeah. of like I nailed it <laughs> <laughs> I don't personally know those people I don't think
1: I don't know any of those people I don't know any of those people I'm certainly not one of those people I mean this is I think it's best just to stay away from all those clip files stay out of that particular morgue but
0: wait when did you go into the sort of like regional magazine
1: yeah so I started teaching um moved to Spain for a year as you do when Mm. you're when you're wanting to you know figure out you see that I go to the water or I go to the place that's unfamiliar in order to figure out what to do um Came back and started freelancing for – how did I even do that? I don't even remember. Oh, I got an agent. And he was wonderful about getting – like, he got me a piece of men's journal. And I can't remember what else. But it still didn't feel right. Like, I was still writing newspaper-y kind of magazine pieces. And I still hadn't cracked the code. Like, I was not a natural – I'm up the middle. You know, I'm not a natural – come at this with your own point of view type of reporter. Mm -hmm. I believe in sort of laying it out and let the readers figure out what they think about it instead of having a very definitive take. Like, hot take is a phrase that I loathe because you know, I'd rather just tell a story and let people figure it out on their own. So that was a little bit hard to figure out, and, and Men's Journal kindly let me try. I did a couple of small things for the New York Times Magazine and was interested in doing more for the New York Times Magazine. And Oh, I know what it was. I went to Columbia for, uh, to get an MFA because I thought that if I had an MFA, that that would allow me writing time, <laughs> mm. that having a teaching job would both allow for health insurance and allow time to pursue magazine stories and books. But all that does is allow time for teaching, which is terribly time consuming and then post columbia there's what 100 grand in debt so you know what do you do then so you go you take jobs and that was when Atlanta. that's when i went to atlanta Uh, okay the brilliant editor rebecca burns hired me as the executive editor of the magazine and that allowed me to both edit and help run the magazine and also to write stories that i cared about it was it was a city regional magazine that did great journalism we did a whole package on MLK and his legacy in Atlanta, parts of it unfulfilled, and it was sitting regional magazines, at least at that point, and maybe still now, I think are the best, uh, they're the hidden secret of American journalism, because you can go and do these deeply reported stories and get space for them and get great art for them and if you're in the right place get great editing which was the case with Rebecca yeah you Um, wrote
0: some amazing stories for Atlanta magazine you wrote my favorite appreciation of Waffle House that I've ever (laughs) read Um,
1: oh please don't put that in the show notes why (laughs) I don't know I don't remember what it was it was good
0: fun it was just like this is Waffle House Waffle House like you see Waffle House and you're like is there a method to the madness of Waffle House and the answer is yes and there, it was. I just reread it.
1: You didn't. Yeah. Did. Oh my god. And I that, haven't read that in ten years. Really?
0: Um. I mean, the one I really wanted to talk about was. I'm going to get the title wrong, but. Angels. There are thousands of angels around you. Have you have thousands of angels. Around which you. I had not read in a long time. I mean, I read it probably at the time, but probably not till it won the National Magazine Award. Right. It made me cry on the subway it did. just yesterday. You're kidding. Um. Yeah. It's like. I mean, for one thing, it's like the perfect magazine story. It really is. It's got everything and it's built in this way that it's like, it's what a magazine story should be. Yeah. Um, but I had some questions about it, one of which was, it strikes me that I think for a lot of people who want to get into writing or creative fields, they have some things that they put out there and they think when I get those things, then that'll be the time when I'll both like feel good about myself and all the doors will open. Right. And I was just curious about, I mean, it's, very rare in my understanding for a regional magazine story to win a national magazine award Mm -hmm. for anything. I mean, they might win for like best package. Texas Monthly is kind of a weird exception. They win a lot of stuff, but like that was unusual Mm -hmm. generally and also like for feature writing it's just like such a coveted thing among writers and the magazine world's not as big a deal as people make it out to be, maybe (laughs) but in that world and I'm just curious if that was one of those things for you that you thought Oh, now everything's going to happen for me. I'm
1: never one of those people who thinks that ever for any reason. No, (laughs) Whenever anything happens. No, because I I don't know. I just don't. I've never been the person who's like, I'm just waiting for my big break. (laughs) You know, I don't. I just want to do good stories and do good work and keep doing good work and like love what I'm doing. And I remember being very. I didn't write for, like, years after that story. I was exhausted by that story. That Mm -hmm. story, a good friend of mine died right in the middle of Mm. the reporting. No, the writing of that piece. And that combined with the story itself. This sounds, I don't want this to sound, maybe this sounds weak, but that took it out of me for some reason. And I just, I went the other way. I didn't say, okay, now, you know, more, 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 more stories like this. I just, I went the other way and just kind of went underground for a while and, I know, you're looking at me like horrified. No, I'm not,
0: no. I'm just uh, that I can understand. I mean, from the story, it's it's a very difficult story. But that's what we do,
1: right? I mean, we do. We we tell difficult stories. We talk about, we talk to people about the worst traumas of their lives. And then part of the job, that's the job, to absorb it and to take it. And to uh, walk them through it as best you can without re-traumatizing them and and I don't know that it was the nature of the story that just sort of sent me the other way. I just remember feeling like, okay, I, I don't know about this. I might I might not write anymore. Mm-hmm. I might not report anymore. Mm-hmm. And I was wrong, of course, because this is the only thing that I love to do. And But it was years after that before I went back to reporting and writing.
0: That story also really struck me because going back and reading it now in everything that's happening i mean it's about a refugee Mm -hmm. and who's experienced horrible trauma we don't have to go into the whole backstory but people should go find and read it; it's online um and then gets resettled in atlanta and like juxtaposing that with what's happening in immigration now like it seemed like incredibly relevant to now and it made me wonder if you know like the story ends with her people should read it so i don't spoil it but <laughs> like maybe going off to like succeed in you know the medical field or something but do you know what happened to her i do
1: know what happened to her um she as far as i know we're not in touch i don't do you keep in touch with the people you almost write almost never almost never me too yeah. and it's rare that i do because i feel like i've already imposed enough on their lives and you don't really you know it, it was a not a transactional thing but it was a I don't know, I feel funny about saying that because it sounds like you just discard people when you're done with them and after the reporting ends and the re- writing ends, but I don't know of a way to hold all that in one space without, does that make sense? I yeah, don't, I don't even know or to that play that sense. role.
0: I mean, there are people, I'm always like amazed when I hear people saying that they have collect, all these people in their lives that remain in their lives because I feel like even at the best, you're forming a function for them where they they're working out things by talking to you yes definitely and then I have had like a few times after the story comes out they want to do that more right and now you are sort of like well now we're in a different we can be friends now maybe, right but right I'm not the person who you just talk at anymore and then right. it's not that's not kind of what they want no like it's, it's kind of dissipates
1: I think most people realize that the relationship necessarily runs its course and that you know you're not in it to become friends but all that to say that the last I checked on Cynthia, um, she's doing very well and was still in Atlanta. And I mean, to me, in some ways, that story feels more relevant now than it did whenever it ran, 2008 maybe?
0: seven, 2007. God, was that 10 years? 2007 or 2008, 10 years ago, yeah. That
1: blows my mind. Yeah, um, it's like
0: almost like uh, maybe they wouldn't care either way, but people who are making these decisions right now, like, should read something like that, you know, and understand the kind of people that are, when you reduce them, are people who can get asylum, like who you're talking about.
1: Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's, um, I don't know if it's a cautionary tale, but it's, uh, the right thing happened with her. Boy, she found, she made her own way and very, in a very tough way. And it worked out for her.
0: I kind of wondered if you had thought about turning that into a book.
1: I never did. Um... There have been a few pieces that I've written, Editor, book editors have come to me and said, what about talking about this? Not like, here's, here's my offer to you to turn this into a book, but let's explore this idea. Nobody did with that one. Somebody did with one that I wrote about, oh, the one about the accident that I wrote about, mm-hmm. which was about some uh, college friends.
0: And it was an O. It was. An o,
1: and that was an editor who wanted to think about a book about grief and I just couldn't you know we talked about for a while and very smart editor lovely editor but I just couldn't imagine living in the grief space any longer Mm -hmm. like it was I'm just done with grief and even if you bring some I don't know levity to it or something I just didn't want to live there So I didn't think about, Cynthia, I didn't think about, this was the first one that really, this dinosaur thing was the first one that felt viable to me and that felt like I could see it. I could actually see it even though it wasn't fully reported or even though it required a lot more reporting um, than the story ended up requiring. It was the one that I could envision. Mm -hmm. I could see it very clearly.
0: Mm -hmm. So just to sort of like complete the narrative, so you that story in Atlanta Magazine, that sort of mm-hmm. drove you in certain ways away from writing. So yeah. then what pulled you back? Like, what brings you back?
1: Story and the work and the reporting and being interested in whatever it is that's happening. And, I, you know, to pay the bills and to pay rent, I don't want to make it sound like I love teaching most of the time. Uh, I love where I'm teaching right now, very definitely. But um, that was a way to stay solve it and to pay the bills and to to get, in some cases, health insurance, but it's terribly time consuming. So my- To do it
0: well, especially. Yeah.
1: And I'm not going to half-ass it. I mean, it's just, it, you can't. If you're really staying on top of what it is you're trying to do with the students, you can't phone it in. So that took more time than I thought it would take. I thought I could teach and then write on the side or, mm-hmm. or do it half and half. Um, So I didn't write as much as I thought I would write. But what got me back into it was, I don't know, talking to people like you. You know, when I did that Dolly Freed story, I forgot about that. It was the Dolly Freed story Mm -hmm. that I was like, here's a good story. And I thought that was a book. That's right. I thought that was it was the first sort of glimmer of come back, come back. Um, And I heard about Dolly Freed, the survivalist, I guess, is what you would call her. Mm -hmm. And she had written a book called Possum Living in the 70s. And I just thought she was a good story and pitched it around and didn't get anywhere with it. Thought about it as a book. Didn't really know how to pitch a book or anybody in that world to, you know, float things with. And that went nowhere, but I did, I published it on my own (laughs) website Yeah. because, um, this was pre-Atavis. It was pre- It was
0: right kind of when we were thinking about starting it and we were looking at all these examples and that was one that, Yeah. I I think that's the timing of it.
1: I wasn't even on Twitter. Like I was, you know, there was, I don't even remember what year it was, 2010 maybe. And I was like, you know, it would be fun just to see if I can do this on my own and then PayPal it, like say, if you like this, pay me. And- I don't think anybody had done it. And so there was no model for it, but I was like, how hard could this be just to, <laughs> and I would have reported and written the story a lot differently if it had been like for somebody other than my, myself. Yeah, uh, Just cause I went with the reporting that I had. I went and visited Dolly where she lives now and, and just used the reporting from that trip because that was also on spec. Like it costs money to go to that place. I had a photographer, you know, shoot really good art for it. That mm-hmm. costs money. I hired a fact checker. That costs money. Uh, so at the end of the day, it was just put, throw it on the website, see what happens, put a PayPal link there. And that was at that moment when people were trying to figure out whether any of this stuff would work and whether it was sustainable. So that was yeah. kind of fun. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And if I recall, like, you made some money, not like wouldn't turn a profit considering you hired a photographer and right. everything else. But, like, people did. I broke even. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So some people, you know, I think I said in one interview, like, I don't care if people send a dime. Like, send what you think it's worth. And sure enough, a little dime came in from, oh, that's from some that's really rude. lovely reader. Yeah. <laughs> but then others, you know, like, there were a few people who were like, here's 100 bucks. Thank yeah. you for doing that story. And it was, it kind of restored my faith in the business in a way that I needed at that moment. And that that's what brought me back, just figuring out how to do stories again. Then I started looking for stories and watching for book ideas and trying to think about where I belonged and wanted to be. And that was it. And that was seven years ago, I guess.
0: Mm. So now at this moment, you have brand new book out that everyone is talking about really favorably from what everything that I could see. It has a big review of the New York Times book section and your staff right at The New Yorker, and you're profiling major political figures. So do you feel like you're, I don't want to ask this because it implies that I'm trying to like trigger one of these, but do you feel like you're like due for another like Gloucester Spain moment or that those are behind you and now you're like- No, I'm home. Yeah.
1: I'm home. I mean, this is what, you want to be at a place where you respect the work that's being done, you respect your colleagues, you learn from your colleagues, you are inspired by them and 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 you're working at this moment in history in particular with the President of the United States declaring war on reporters and on what we do it feels like a renewed calling in a way so it feels like exactly the right place for me and I feel like this is where I belong in this moment and at this place
0: well, I'm glad that in this moment we could have you on this podcast.
1: I'm glad too, after all these years. Thank you for doing it. Thank you for having me.
0: That is it for this week's long form podcast. I'm your co host, Evan Ratliff. Thanks to my co hosts, Aaron Lammer and Max Linsky. Thanks to Paige Williams for coming on the program. And to our editor, Janelle Pfeiffer, our intern, Tyler McCloskey, and as always, our sponsors, MailChimp and Pit Writers. We'll see you next week.